Let's continue in Ephesians chapter 4. We made it as far as verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Let's attempt to get to the bottom of this descended, and we'll talk about the ascended later. This is definitely a portion of the Bible where there are a lot of different interpretations. And I like to have a really certain interpretation. In fact, in fact, the vast majority of the Bible is not difficult to interpret, and I like that certainty that we can come in and know what it means, but this isn't one of those passages where we can be 100% sure. You might be persuaded one way or the other, but still, to interpret this, we would need more information. This descent, is it referring to the incarnation of Christ? When it says that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, couldn't that mean that Jesus came to earth in the most lowliest, in the most lowly fashion? Because he was not born wealthy. Couldn't the descent be Jesus taking on the form of a man and lowering himself, right? Willingly taking on flesh and making himself so lowly, being born as a baby, being born in that stable uh, of, of no reputation. That could be the lowly descent. There was a false teaching around in the church at this time. The Gnostics taught that everything that was physical, no matter what, was automatically evil. So they believed that God could never come and take on human flesh because if God is perfect, and he is, he's holy, he's perfect, how could he take on a physical frame which is going to be corrupt no matter what? That was the thinking of the Gnostics. In fact, they taught that God, in order to reach us in our humanity, in our depravity, in our physical state, would have to go through layers and layers of angels. So do you see in the text where it says here that... Um, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above. Is Paul making it clear to the Gnostics, I believe that this is very possible, that the same one who ascended into the heavens, Jesus the Christ, Jesus God the Son, is also the one who came to earth in the lowliest fashion and took on flesh. Telling the Ephesians, don't listen to the teaching of the Gnostics. Just because something is physical does not mean that it's automatically evil. In fact, Jesus took on flesh and was holy as he walked this earth. Is that what the apostle is teaching here? Or is this descent referring to a visit to Abraham's bosom? Is that the lower part of the earth? Yes, it could be Jesus's incarnation, him coming, but it could be referring to a place even lower, Abraham's bosom. Have you ever considered this? What happened to those Old Testament saints, those who died before Jesus gave his life, where did they go when they died? Did they go to heaven also? We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that for us, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We have this promise from God as believers that if we're not here, 
we're with him. If we're away from this physical frame, we're right before Jesus. But how about the Old Testament saints and even those who died during the earthly ministry of Jesus? Where did they go when they died? Because they were saved the same way that we're saved, by grace through faith. And we have that record of many of them in Hebrews chapter 11. So one interpretation of this is that Jesus went to Abraham's bosom, to the place where the Old Testament saints were. It was, wasn't a place of torment. It was a place of safety and protection. And that when, after Jesus died on the cross, he went and he descended and he led that host of people free from their captivity because they were waiting for the coming of Jesus. Now, where do we learn about Abraham's bosom? In Luke chapter 16, verse 19, and this would be a good thing to read. It's Right now, we'll read it together, and it's a longer portion, so go there with me, Luke 16, 19. Sometimes this is called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, but I don't think it's a parable, because in no other parable does Jesus actually give the names of people, right? And here we see Abraham, a historical uh, picture of the beginning of Israel, And we also see Lazarus, who was the beggar. So here it speaks of Abraham's bosom, Luke 16, 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Sounds nice, right? He's got great clothes, right? What else does he have? He's got great food. He lives a life of leisure. He's got everything he needs because he's wealthy. The history continues. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. Sounds like a terrible existence. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to there cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. So do you see how this place of Abraham's bosom could be that place where Old Testament saints are until 
Jesus gives his life on the cross, forgiven through grace by their faith. And in some translations, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, it could be translated, he led a host of captives. And I like the scene. I don't know for sure if Jesus went there to Abraham's bosom, but consider the scene. There are all those there waiting, thousands of people. Moses and Joshua. I just think of the host of believers. And Jesus shows up and says, let's go home. Shows up, death has been defeated. Your sin has been paid for. Wouldn't also the thief on the cross be there? Because he died before Jesus died. And what did Jesus say to him? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. So Abraham's bosom was obviously not a place of torment, but a place of protection. This could be referring to that. Once again, different interpretations. At one point, it was a part of the Apostles' Creed. Originally, it wasn't that that Christ descended into hell, not meaning the place of torment, but meaning the place of Abraham's bosom. So let's get to the the facts that that really matter here. I titled this whole message, To the Victor Who Gives the Spoils. How does that phrase usually go? To the victor belongs the spoils, right? Whoever wins gets all the stuff. Whoever is victorious automatically gets the spoils, gets what the, the loser used to have. But you look at Jesus, and he's the victor. He defeated death, but he handles his victory differently to the victor who gives the spoils. Because we learn here that Jesus, in his victory, gives out of the abundance of what he has earned through his victory. And we'll get a picture of King David in Psalm 68. And if you studied this, you looked that up. And we have David there, who is a very ordinary king as far as men go. He went out into battle. That's what I mean. And when he would win, whoever he conquered, all their stuff was his. And he got all those people, even as slaves unto him. So let's consider, as we look at seven through 10 again, a few points of application. Use your spiritual gifts victoriously. Paul quotes Psalm 68, 18. Listen, this is what he quotes. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men. So the idea in Psalm 68 is that King David returned victorious and gave, he got gifts. He got the spoils of war. That's what we're used to as people. The the victorious person gets the result of the victory. They don't give the trophy away. They don't give away the prize. It's theirs to keep. This is true politically now. It's known as the spoils system. Goes back to our seventh president, Andrew Jackson. Some of you were really bored in my class when I taught about Andrew Jackson, but I've been fascinated with him from a young age because I remember looking at a $20 bill and thinking, who is this guy wrapped up in a blanket, all hunched over? A lot of the other people on our money look all dignified they've got in their suits. You ever look at a 20 and just be like, Andrew Jackson, he looks like a bum right? It's like extremely popular president comes in, campaigns hardcore and says, hey, if I win, all of you who helped me win, right? All of you who helped me win, 
this victory belongs to you. And when Andrew Jackson was elected, the White House was overrun with the general population. They literally were jumping out of windows, crashing, jumping into the punch bowl and spitting tobacco everywhere because it was like, woo, we won. Because Andrew Jackson, known as a common man, an ordinary guy, right? Old hickory. And that was ordinary. But now look at this Psalm 68. It has been taken by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he flips the Psalm around. And instead of he saying he gets gifts, or instead of receives gifts, he gives gifts. A normal king wins a victory in battle and he shows up at home with this train of captives, slaves, that are now his because he has defeated them. But Jesus is this victorious warrior who frees captives. So we are free. We were slaves. And in his victory, he set us free. He gives gifts. He doesn't just receive them. What kind of king is this? It is a king who leads in freedom, not in bondage. One who gives more than he has received. So this is the conclusion that most of you drew as you were looking at this, even though the word is different. Paul takes Psalm 68 and he says, led captivity captive, you have received gifts, and there is Jesus giving gifts to us. This teaches me and you an amazing truth that your spiritual gifts are the spoils of Christ's eternal victory. So when Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, and ascended into heaven, the spoils of that victory were your spiritual gifts. God gave you and me grace. Grace and doing so victoriously. But this isn't one that's commonly pointed out. Jesus won those gifts when he ascended on high. And now he has handed them over to you. And each one of you, if you're a believer, you have spiritual gifts to offer the body of Christ. And you and I already use those gifts victoriously. We get some of those gifts in this passage. But this passage is really about the body of Christ operating. It's about us using our gifts. But it's so good to know that these gifts are given to us because of Jesus's victory. That makes them even more precious. By grace, we have received them because Jesus is the victor. That's how you acquired your spiritual gifts. So since that's how you got your gifts, how could you not use them? That's what I'm asking myself. And that's what I'm asking you. Jesus is the one who earned them. How can we not operate according to the gifts that he has given us since he defeated death, rose from the grave and ascended into heaven and then gave us the spoils, gave us those gifts, and then we're not going to use them? Sometimes the attitude is, I'll get around to operating my gifts for the greater good at some point. When I retire, after I finish this project, once the kids are out on their own, after this health concern is ironed out, once I get out from under the bondage of sin, 
I just read all this off my notes. I'm just thinking these are things in my life and in my mind where the attitude can come in where I'll get to it, God. Still, overall, we can be guilty of postponing the gift that God has given to us for many so-called reasons. But really, they're not reasons, are they? They're excuses. Jesus is victorious. He gives you and me grace so that we can, first of all, be saved, but also so that we can use our spiritual gifts for the equipping of the saints, for the edification of the body of Christ, for his good pleasure, for the pleasure of his body. Seeing our spiritual gifts in this light should prompt us to say, I don't want to be idle. I don't want to be stingy. I don't want to be conditional because Jesus is the victor and he's given me these gifts so that I can use them for his glory. Many, many professing Christians in America participate in the body of Christ when they want to and they don't participate in the body of Christ when they don't want to. And I guess because so many don't consistently study the word of God, they're able to fool themselves into thinking that that's acceptable to God. And when I look at his word, I just cannot, I, I don't see that at all in his word, that you and I are supposed to postpone our, our functioning as a body, that we can say wait, or, or, or maybe later, but that we're supposed to pour out what he first poured into us. There's this attitude that God is, is, is happy with a personal relationship even if we don't use our gifts very much. Now, God is happy with our personal relationship with him. But if out of that doesn't flow obedience to him and servitude, that does not bring delight to God. That's an error. That's weak Christianity. So I look at the victory of Jesus, and you and I should be convicted to use our spiritual gifts victoriously. That's how we gained them in the first place. We see the design of the body of Christ. This picture of the physical frame, and how when one component, one member is hurting, the rest of the body kicks in and, and compensates for that hurting. We see the design, but here we're seeing how the gifts were delivered to us. They were delivered to us through the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. His victory is the basis for our gifts. Three times here in just these few verses, it says ascended, which means he went up, not only into heaven, but from the grave. So now he has given to us spiritual gifts. Are we storing those gifts or are we using those gifts? Should we be using them, shouldn't we? Safekeeping? Or are we using them for the glory of the king? We are more than conquerors. So that was number one, use your spiritual gifts victoriously. Number two, give God Give glory to God for spiritual gifts. Look at, number, at verse 7 and verse 11, because they both make this point that our gifts are by God's grace. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then look at 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles. And then he goes on. Our gifts were given when the Lord ascended on high. They're the spoils of victory that is given to us. But it's important to see what's right in the name. A spiritual gift 
is not earned. That's why it's called a gift. But so often we treat spiritual gifts like a paycheck or an earning or something that we somehow deserve. When it comes to our salvation, we're accustomed to giving God the glory for our salvation. We can say it so clearly, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Oh, I would not think of taking credit for my salvation. Now let's take another step in the right direction. Would we think of taking credit for our spiritual gifts? Thinking that somehow we have merited those gifts and begin to boast in ourselves. I know that the Lord called them gifts and not talents or abilities because he wanted us to realize that we did nothing to deserve them. The gifts and the callings of the Lord are irrevocable. It teaches us that in the book of Romans. Have you ever looked at a certain person and thought to yourself, how in the world did they end up with such a good gift? They stink. They don't deserve that gift. I want that gift. And then you realize none of us have earned our spiritual gifts in the first place. Just by nature of me asking, how did they end up with that gift? I'm starting to think that our gifts are earned and they're not earned. They're given to us by God through his grace. It's certainly more common for people to act like they're something special because of their spiritual gifting. Isn't that more common than, than strutting around because of your salvation? I'm not saying that some don't misuse their salvation and act like they've done something, but when it comes to spiritual gifts, why is it that in the body of Christ, there can be this attitude where we think that others have earned their gifts or maybe that we've earned our gifts. When any of that comes into our hearts, our attitudes, or our actions, it just needs to be flushed out right away. And if you're like me, I think you are, it needs to be flushed out a lot. Like just a washing over with the word of God. Otherwise, we'd call them spiritual badges. We don't need badges. We have gifts. They're from God. So why is it more common for people to think that their spiritual gifts are earned somehow? Maybe it's because the gifts are so diverse. Our salvation is the same, isn't it? All of us are sinners, desperately in need of God's grace. He, he gave to us his very life, his bloodshed, so that we could be forgiven, pardoned, freed from our sins, and set on the path to heaven. We have this common salvation but we don't necessarily have common gifts. The word of God says that there's a diversity of gifts. And whenever somebody has something different, we start to think, oh, it must be better. This comes with food too. At, like truth for teens, young adults, we serve like the same food to everybody, right? Because even if the little food that's left over here is lousy food, people are like, oh, what's that? oh, it must be better because it's different. There's something in us that when you have something different, we sometimes think that it's superior and it's not. Is that one of the reasons? We tend to sort them and rate them because they're diverse. Is it because some gifts are more public than other gifts? You don't often see 
the gift of mercy broadcasted on the internet. But you often see the gift of teaching, don't you? And so you might think, well, because it's seen by a lot of people, it must be extremely important. It must be more important than those gifts that are not often seen in operation. Paul makes this point in teaching about the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians, and he asks you to think about your body. Aren't there lots of parts of your body that are super important, even though they're not seen? Oh, yeah. 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 You've never seen your heart before, right? I mean, maybe on an echo or something, but you've never actually laid eyes on your heart before. And how important is that? Just because a gift isn't often seen or isn't as prominent, that does not at all mean that it's not as important. So do we think of our gifts in terms of merit because of that? Or maybe it's because the more we operate our gifts, the better we get at them. You know, this is really true. The more you are serving the Lord and your hand is at the task that he gave for you to do, most people, some people get worse, but most people get better. Maybe, maybe I'm one of those people getting worse. I don't know. I ask my wife all the time, am I getting worse? And she goes, I don't think so. That's a really assuring answer, isn't it? <laughs> but the longer you're in there applying your attention and your effort to whatever God has gifted you to do, you get better at it. So then we start to think that the gift originally was probably a result of our hard work or ambition or big dreams or whatever, and nothing could be further from the the truth. You could work and work and want and want, but if God hasn't gifted you to do something, it's it's still not your gift. (laughs) I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'm not doing anybody a favor by encouraging them to operate in a gift that God never gave them. I hear pastors say, and I tell them they're pathetic, I do. Why are you encouraging this person to do that? It's pretty obvious that they're not gifted to do it. Like, be a good coach and get in there and redirect them to something where they can be used. But they really want to do this, bless their heart. They weren't built to do it. That's not their gift. So is it because we do get better at our gifts that we start to think they're based on something that we've earned? Or this is the most fearful one for me, and I think for the whole church. Since the unbelieving world is in the practice of boasting in themselves, have we become like them? Because isn't our world just so braggadocious? That's a great word. It's, it's so, they're so full of themselves. Oh, look what I can do. Look how awesome I am. And then you see in the body of Christ where we're supposed to boast in the Lord alone when it comes to our salvation, because it was given by grace, and when it comes to our gifts, because they were given by grace. But we take on the mentality of the unbelieving world and start to sort of level and put importance on certain gifts for these reasons when the Bible says, You were given this by God's grace. You didn't earn it. Use it victoriously. Give glory to God for spiritual gifts. Their presence to you from the Lord. Unmerited favor. Calling them gifts so that we know that we don't deserve them. This portion is going to be challenging for all of us. God's going to use it to tell us 
I want you to use your gift for my glory. And he knows exactly what he needs to tell us in order to get us moving in the right direction, to get us willing. First of all, I see if Jesus ascended on high and gave me these spoils so that I could use them, I should. Second, I see that it's his glory anyways. So if he gifted me to do it, it's by his grace. And he is going to receive the glory for all of this. Then it says in 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the ministry, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Thirdly, I would say equip the saints with the gifts. Let's talk about the word equipped, equip. It does mean to make ready. It does mean to have the right equipment. But this term literally means to set back in joint. Have you ever had a bone that needs to be set? Have you ever had a joint that's out? The Bible is here in the context of the body of Christ saying that equipping is to reset that wounded part, that the edifying, that the equipping comes when, is it, now does that feel good? Have you ever had that happen before? Your shoulder's out of joint. Does it feel good at first to have it put back in place? Your back goes out. It's, it's, it hurts at first, and then afterwards, sometimes there's some relief. Equipping is to set back in its right place, to set back in joint, to build up, to be stronger, to make more stable. So look what the Lord gave, and he himself gave some to be apostles. Apostolos. This is not a word that needs to be translated. It's transliterated. You remember when you were taking Spanish? I think most of you did. They were cognates. Basically, words that sound a lot the same in Spanish as they do in English. And if you learn your cognates, you can lift your vocabulary immediately. This word is literally apostles in the original language. So the Lord gave the church apostles. The meaning of apostles is a sent one. You've heard that maybe before. But it, it means an ambassador. The same way that one kingdom sends an ambassador to another, that's what an apostle is, a special ambassador. Earlier in this book, we learned that God used the apostles and the prophets as the foundation of the church, even to write his word by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That foundation has been laid. And we are still reaping the benefit and the equipping of what the apostles did. Right now, we're reading the Holy Spirit-inspired work of the Apostle Paul. And we're becoming equipped. We're getting set back into joint again. There's this question oftentimes that we have, are there apostles today? I don't see in God's word that there are apostles today in the same way that Peter was an apostle or the same way that John was an apostle. Those men penned the word of God. 
I don't believe that there are apostles like that today. We know that in the New Jerusalem, there will be 12 foundations and 12 gates with the names of the 12 apostles. So in that sense, I don't see that scripture teaches that we're going to continue to have apostles because that foundation has already been laid and we are reaping our equipment, our equipping from them. But in the sense that people are sent to countries, to cultures, to go and to plant churches, yes, in that sense, there are those who are sent out as ambassadors and God does a mighty work through their lives. And one of the things when it comes to apostles is having to say that you're an apostle. Have you ever run into somebody who says they're apostle? I have a few of them and it, it's like, oh, I never heard of you, right? That's what I usually say to them, like, well, because I'm just now getting going. Now, if, if Martin Luther was still around, I, I heard of him, right? And he did some damage for the kingdom. Maybe in some sense, he was an apostle, or, or maybe Charles Spurgeon, like somebody who was used in a mighty way by the Lord, not in the same way as Peter, John, or, or Paul, or Thomas, but still one sent out with a special mission to reach people for the Lord, to be that ambassador for his namesake. The church is being equipped by the apostles, that's for sure. Now we get to prophets, some to be apostles, some prophets. A prophet speaks the word of God. Many in the church today are looking for fortune tellers. They're really wowed by the foretelling, but many of them could care less about the foretelling of God's word, forthtelling of God's word. So it is true the prophetic ministry has both components. You read your prophets in the Bible, and a lot of what they said wasn't predictive in nature at all. The people already knew it, right? They were truths of God that they were being delivered to them, right? And they would say things like Jonah the prophet said, if you don't repent, there'll, there'll be judgment. Well, that's not really that amazing of a prophecy in some people's mind, because they're thinking, of course there'll be judgment. But wasn't he still proclaiming the word of God? That's what a prophet does speaks forth the word of God. In this, yes, we have gifts like the word of knowledge described for us in, in the Bible, and there could be a predictive component to it, but still, this is the speaking forth of the word of God, and it would be accurate each and every time if it's given in a predictive fashion. Still, doesn't the word of God, as it goes forth, set us back in place again? Doesn't it put us back into joint the way that we should be? When we come to God's word, when we're willing to listen to it, it does a work in our lives every time of adjusting. You go to the chiropractor, I don't, I'm not a chiropractor person. I hear people say like, I'm going to go get adjusted. And I'm like, I ask, well, by who? Oh, I go to the chiropractor, I need to get adjusted. That's what happens to us spiritually and eternally when the word of God comes to us off the page from the teacher, from the prophet. There's adjustments in our lives, aren't there? And if we 
can come before the word of God with no adjustment? Something's wrong. Amen? And we can come and say, Lord, I don't, I don't need any of these reminders. I don't need you to check my motives. I don't need you to look at my thought life. This wasn't a mirror to me at all. The problem isn't with the word of God. The problem isn't with the prophetic. The problem is with us. Let the word of God adjust you. Doesn't it do just that in your life? Each time I come to it with an open heart and an open mind, it does that adjusting, and I praise God for that. When it comes to apostles, when it comes to prophets, God, in a smaller sense, for each one of us, has a place to send you. And maybe you don't think that's like a Hudson Taylor, you know, go and, and, and plant the seed of God's word in a whole country. But that doesn't mean that you can't be a sent one and that God isn't telling you, go in my name, represent me. When it comes to the prophetic, if the Lord is putting his word in your mind, it's in the context of conversation and it just pops into your mind, makes itself known in your heart, that wasn't an accident, right? The Lord is telling you, speak my word. Be that prophetic voice. Speak into that person's life, not with your own opinion, but with what you know the word of God says. And sometimes we're wondering, well, if I tell them, well, the Bible says, <laughs> they'll just be turned off. That's going to be up to them. Share, give, proclaim prophetically that word of God so that we can be set back and join again. Those adjustments are desperately needed. In one of our small groups last Friday, Bob shared with, with the group that I was in that often sometimes he's prompted to say something because he knows it's the right, right thing for that person at that time. And then he shared that sometimes he argues with God and says, but God, I don't like confrontation. And there are other people that love it. You know those kind of people? They're just very dramatic and they just can't wait for some sort of action. Why don't you send one of them to go and deal with this? And then Bob shared, well, then he reminds me, well, maybe I don't want that drama queen or king to go and deal with it. Maybe I want you to speak forth my word because it'll be, you know, it's hard for you, but it'll be received or it'll be given in the right manner. Each one of us, you might say, well, that's not my gift, but still the word of God dwells in you and it should dwell in you richly. Share the word of God as the Holy Spirit gives you utterance. I say this because we get to evangelism next. If I could pick my gift, no doubt in mind, I'd pick evangelist. There, I, it's, it's been the top of my list ever since. I read about it. I was like, you mean there's actually a gift that certain people have? And when they give the gospel, I mean, not everybody gets saved, but people get saved. And they say the same thing that I do, but because the gift is according to God's grace and by his spirit, People just get saved seemingly out of nowhere. How does that happen? I'm so envious, right? But it's a gift. It's a calling. 
But if you don't give the gospel, how will you know if, if you're gifted in that area or not? And just like prophecy and apostleship in some fashion, every one of us needs to do the work of an evangelist. We're told that in the pastoral epistles to, to pastors, like do the work of an evangelist. You might not see a lot of effort. Maybe you're a teacher, but you're not necessarily gifted in evangelism. People will get saved, but not in droves. I want droves. I want lots, right? This is actually a gift. What a wonderful gift. And it's given by God's grace. And then the, the fourth gift um, some people call this the fivefold ministry. Actually, there's just four here. If you look in the original language, pastor, teacher is the same. You can't be a teacher unless you're a pastor. Can't be a, you can't be a pastor unless you're a teacher. Let's put it that way. So I see churches that say, well, they're the administrative pastor or they're the music pastor. Well, unless they're te- able to teach the word of God, that, I think that's just a title you probably gave them to make them feel good, Right? Just call them an administrator because that's a gift also, right? But don't call them an administrative pastor. Pastors are teachers by God's design. They guide with his word, not with, with their own ways. And so we see Paul saying all these gifts, and these are some very prominent gifts in the body of Christ as far as being seen. They're all given by the grace of God to set the body back in its right place, to do the adjustments, to have the adjustments for the work of the ministry, for the equipping of the saints. That is all of us. The Bible doesn't have an exhaustive list of gifts as far as the gifts of the Spirit. But as we study this before Sunday, God willing, look, look up what other gifts are, are listed in the Scripture. What in what ways has God already used me? And what does he want me doing? Or I know he's, he's called me to do this. I know he's gifted me in this manner. How, how can I put my hand to the plow? How can I apply my life to the task of living for the glory of God? Jesus, I thank you for giving us all that we have. It's amazing what you said before you left that it would be better for us if you went away, Lord. That's hard for us to understand, but you said it. And and you've sent your spirit to comfort us, to empower us. You've given us gifts for your glory, and may we always use them in that manner, Lord. Help us not to store them away. Lord, give us the Holy Spirit drive to to use what you have victoriously won through your resurrection and ascension. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.